This week's episode is brought to you by Imaginerding.com. Visit Imaginerding for history and reviews of theme parks, Disney books, Disney Blu-rays, and more. That's Imaginerding.com. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And I'm going to make another plea right now for people to call our goat line. We have about 20 messages so far that we're, you know, narrowing down to play on the final show. But mm-hmm. uh, give us a call. Um, the number is 424-785-4628. And uh, we've gotten some weird ones so far, and I can't wait to share them with, with you guys. Well, I figured, you know, we'd have to have a special show just for Russell and his voicemails. Oh, man. His voicemails are legion. Exactly. And we've exactly. only played like one or two over time of his, but I mean, he calls a lot. <laughs> like it's it's almost like he's got no life outside of calling us. And well, it's a concerning amount, you know, Russell. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning we'll put this out, and then I'll come back to the voicemail, and we'll have like twenty new ones from him. Just from him, exactly. Just from him. But uh, <laughs> let's go to the history segment. It's time for Disney history. Walt Disney sat restlessly on a bench in Los Angeles in Griffith Park. You know, and he ate a handful of peanuts, and he waved as the colorful horses who carried his two young uh, children uh, around on the carousel went by. Walt really loved his Saturday afternoons with Diane and Sharon, but on this particular day, his mind was heavy and full of other thoughts. Not because his daughters were keeping him from more important things, it was actually quite the opposite. He found himself wishing that he can find a way to join them in all their fun. Walt cherished the childhood years, seeing the glee and innocence of his daughters. He also realized that something was missing. If children found such delight in an afternoon at the park, why did their parents have to sit idly by? He believed there should be a place that provided genuine fun for everyone in the family to enjoy. However, this was not the case in the 1940s. Amusement parks and carnivals of that era were designed solely for the entertainment of children, to the exclusion of almost everyone else. So about this, Walt said to Reader's Digest once, At an amusement park, the only fun provided for a father, besides having his bottom dropped out from under him on the roller coaster, was the same he enjoyed all week, buying the tickets. So Walt's focus on improving wholesome family entertainment should come as no surprise to anyone, really. He was a man with profound professional responsibilities, but also remained an involved and attentive father. Although his work days at Walt Disney Productions often stretched deep into the night, Walt made sure to spend his weekends with Diane and Sharon. In these, daddy days took many forms, from a trip to the Griffith Park merry-go-round to time spent together at the Disney Studio. And while the girls rode bikes and played along the studio's many streets, Walt stalked the halls of the animation department, scoping out the week's work. Always a devoted father, he sometimes had to bow to reality and mix in a little work on a daddy day. But, of course, Walt was used to it. 
He had been blending work with family time from his very first moments of fatherhood. When Lillian uh, went into labor with Diane on December 18, 1933, Walt was with the president of the University of Southern California, being honored for his distinguished service to children. As words reached him that his first newborn's daughter was uh, imminent, he rushed from the award ceremony to be at his wife's side. Why then, years later, as he sat on that Griffith Park bench, did Walt feel so frustrated? He recognized the need for a family-friendly park in California that would cater to guests of all ages. A place where everyone, children and adults alike, could play together, explore together, and laugh together. The problem? Nothing like this existed at the time. So Walt, the ultimate creative genius, did as he had done so often throughout his career and decided to create one himself. Little did he, or the world, know at the time, but this creation would become one of his crowning glories. Walt Disney was going to build Disneyland. So although the concept was far too nebulous to even have a name at this point, Disneyland would be a new kind of amusement park, one specifically designed from the ground up to attract the masses. It was going to be a real park for all ages. Parents would no longer be uh, regulated to the sideline. Everyone would have fun together. Out were the harassing cries of the carnival barker and the grimy pathways of the amusement parks of that era. Walt's Disneyland would be very, very different. Admittedly, that Saturday afternoon at Griffith Park was not the first time Walt considered building a park to welcome visitors. But the Griffith Park experience had crystallized the very concept of what would set Disneyland apart and ensure its eventual success. Whatever he built must be for everyone. Thoughts of a Disney park had danced in Walt's head for several years, back to when the Disney studio first began fielding innumerable requests for tours of its Burbank studio. Walt certainly did not want an endless parade of visitors coming through the busy work floors where production could be interrupted, so he toyed with creating a small park on the premises to be the focal point of these tours. Guests could then visit the Disney studio while animated production kept humming along unimpeded, and those visiting would hopefully become future theatergoers and customers. With studio finances in desperate straits from the outbreak of World War II through much of the 40s, neither the studio tour park nor Walt's uh, spark of inspiration at Griffith Park ventured far beyond that starting line. The attraction of Disneyland might not seem obvious to us today, but at the time, it was a huge risk. Walt could just not muster enough support to begin planning. And ironically, in 1948, it was the same unrelenting financial pressure that finally propelled the Disneyland dream from Walt's imagination into reality. Unsteady studio finances from years of wartime belt tightening understandably weighed heavy on Walt's mind. And at times like this, he often found support during his daily arthritis treatments. Hazel George, the studio nurse, provided a valuable friend and confidant, lending an ear as he recounted the stresses of running the studio. Knowing that Walt had fallen in love with trains during his early years in Marceline, Missouri, it was Hazel who suggested that he take a relaxing trip to that summer's Chicago Railroad Fair to clear his head. Walt readily agreed, and along with his fellow train buff, Ward Kimball, traveled back to his hometown. Once at the fair, Walt took particular notice of how the organizers used numerous themed exhibits about railroading's illustrious history to draw in the huge crowds. The Chicago trip might have begun as a stress-relieving indulgence to Walt's favorite hobby, but it quickly became one of research. So Walt and Ward's journey, though, did not end in Illinois. The pair made an eastward detour to Michigan for a visit to Henry Ford's Greenfield Village. Now, this attraction featured many historical buildings, both authentic and reproductions, which seemingly transported visitors back to America's past. Walt was clearly inspired because much of the Greenfield Village's nostalgic whimsy showed up in his plans for Disneyland. 
Back in Hollywood and bursting with new ideas, Walt sent a memo to studio designer Dick Kelsey detailing his dream for a small tourist attraction. Dubbed Mickey Mouse Park, the plans called for a village green with a railroad station at one end and a town hall, actually an administration building for Disney employees, at the other. Further staples of a small town's main street were also included, chief among them uh, an authentic firehouse and police station. The Disney presence at Mickey Mouse Park, other than the name, was intended to be understated. Only a few select shops would sell studio merchandise, ensuring a refreshingly calm atmosphere. In an interesting twist, Walt also planned a store that would sell products created by the Disney artists themselves. And the oddest inclusion, one that seemingly went against everything Walt wanted, was Mickey Mouse Park's carnival section. So the memo he wrote, he gave, it gave very little detail beyond some planned midway games on a roller coaster, but it did acknowledge that the finer points of the carnival were to be worked out later. Concerning Walt's outspoken disdain for carnivals, there is little doubt that his vision more closely resembled, uh, resembled the spirit of Storybook Circus as opposed to a carny sideshow. Nevertheless, the influence of Greenfield Village on his initial proposal appeared immense. In fact, to many there seemed little amusement, but plenty of theming, to be found at Mickey Mouse Park. A western village and stagecoach ride were briefly mentioned, but the small town itself remained the star of the show. Mickey Mouse Park sprang into life in that August 1931, uh, August 31st, 1948 memo and went dormant just as quickly. With an eye on the bottom line and the boomer bus cycle the studio finances, Roy Disney made the difficult decision not to support this pet project of Walt's. Almost five years would then pass before the world finally learned about Walt's dream of a Disney theme park. But even after Roy's rejection of Mickey Mouse Park, the wheels of Disneyland were still turning, both literally and figuratively, right in Walt's backyard. The Chicago Railroad Fair had not only inspired Walt to finally put his park plans down on paper, but also to pursue a more hands-on role in his railroading hobby. With much assistance from studio mechanics, he built his 1-8th scale Callerwood Pacific Railroad for use at his home in uh, Homely Hills. So after finishing its construction in 1950, Walt would frequently treat guests to a train ride around his spacious yard. Riding atop the engine, dubbed the Lily Bell, he was enchanted by the squeals of laughter from all aboard. With his park decidedly on the studio's back burner, the Carrollwood Pacific kept Walt's dream alive and well, but far from the public's eye. On March 27, 1952, Disneyland stepped back into the spotlight. That morning, Burbank residents were greeted with an intriguing headline, Walt Disney Make-Believe Land Project planned here. Everyone now knew about Disneyland, and for Walt, it did not happen a moment too soon. What happened to Walt's Make-Believe Land Project next? <laughs> we'll come back next week to Nothing. hear more. <laughs> Nothing happened at all. <laughs> this has all been a ruse. Mm -hmm. All of it's been a ruse. So, uh, yeah, we'd love to know... Uh, your thoughts about Walt's early plans. What do you think would have happened if he would have built this much smaller Mickey Mouse Park? Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies by J.B. Kaufman and Russell Merritt is a revised and updated version of the 2006 book. And with the full release 
of every silly symphony on the Walt Disney Classics line. You know, the the DVDs that came in those heavy tin. Uh, I guess they weren't really tin. They weren't tin. <laughs> but those heavy like, metal-like containers. Yeah. Not like heavy metal-like yeah. music, but... More like an aluminum, I guess. Yeah. Anyway. Illuminati. Yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. Got it. You want to talk about that? Anyway. <laughs> so, with those releases, we now have access to all of those animated shorts over two different sets. So this book, uh, the Silly Symphonies book, comes out at a great time, especially since there have been some sort of new findings from the archives. So the Silly Symphonies shorts were at the forefront of Disney's art in the 1930s, where Walt and his animators experimented with new things and really pushed how far animation could go. So this book looks at the history of their creation and how they were forming the stepping stones for Walt's later feature-length animation films. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of the authors Kaufman and Merritt. They're true historians who have spent years studying and researching the Disney studios and animation. So the first section of the book is a fairly straightforward, yet pretty dense history of the Silly Symphonies. And it's about 30 pages, and they, the, it's sort of dedicated to looking at the cultural effect of the animated shorts, as well as how they evolved as the needs of the Disney studios changed. And we're also introduced to a lot of the key players who would go on to leave a lasting mark on animation forever. Uh, This section is actually pretty uh, extensive, despite only being 30 pages long. And I I felt they did a great job of covering the history of the shorts before diving Mm -hmm. in and looking at the shorts themselves. Um, so the other half of the book, or the other part of the book, each short uh, is accompanied by some vital information about it. You know, the plot, the folks who worked on it, the special meanings behind it, and so on. In addition to a couple of uh, screenshots from the short itself sometimes. Yeah, the section dealing with the shorts, which is the largest part of the book, is incredibly comprehensive. I was very surprised that even the the price of the the negative, or how the you know how much it cost to print the negative, was actually included. So, I mean, you can see some of the silly symphonies were eighteen thousand dollars to print the negative, and this is back in the thirties, which is insane. Uh, yeah. So uh, the uh, uh, we're talking about the negative, but Merritt and Kaufman, the authors, also, as Jeff mentioned, provide all the basic information that you'd expect, and it's usually over a page and a half. And there's a lot of information that they've included on the Silly Symphonies, and that's what makes this book an essential purchase. And really, it's a, it's a one-of-a-kind research tool. Yeah, it was pretty amazing how in-depth uh, some of the things went in the book. Um, I mean, there's even production notes for each film, which were fun to read. And there was also uh, an appendix of unproduced Silly Symphonies. And really, overall, it's one heck of a book, especially if you're a fan of the cartoons. I mean, uh, Kaufman always goes above and beyond in his research, so with Merritt in his corner, I mean, it helps even more. Yeah, animation fans and researchers are going to find this is one of the most valuable and indispensable titles released over the past few years. And, you know, honestly, it's really great to see Disney offer, you know, basically two non-Disney employees fairly open access to the archives for research. This is something that hasn't happened before or in a while. And, you know, I think this, this really bodes well for future researchers. So, you know, this book, the Silly Symphonies book, really offers so much and, you know, any enthusiast that likes animation is going to love this book. Yeah, not just fans of Silly Symphonies, but fans of early animation in general. I mean, um, it's just fantastic overall. Um, if you already own the original version of the book, is it worth picking up again? Probably not, but, uh, you know, not a whole heck of a lot was added to it. But it's still a gorgeous book, and it's definitely a must-own if you don't already have it. 
Exactly. I think we we both loved it. So this week's book was Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies by J.B. Kaufman and Russell Merritt. What we liked, what we didn't like, yays in the booze, 60-second review! So this week's 60-second review is Finding Dory on Blu-ray. And this was actually a movie that I know both of us missed in the theaters. And I, I think I'm the only person in the world who wasn't really a big fan of Finding Nemo, so I just wasn't as excited about this release. And since I, I came into the viewing on Blu-ray with such low expectations, I was f- surprised by the movie. But, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, on the other hand, I love Finding Nemo, um, but I did approach this one with some trepidation. I mean, th- how could they repeat the success of such a well-loved film, especially one that was kind of succinctly, was pretty self-contained? Um, so, the story of Finding Dory takes place only a year later in movie time, even though it's been like 13 years since it originally came out, um, <laughs> and revolves around Ellen's character searching for her parents. And of course, you know, she gets separated, and it's up to Marlin and Nemo to find her, while she continues to search for what she's looking for and making new friends along the way. Yeah, and Dory was really an amazing and uh, well-done character in Finding Nemo. But how do you make a character with a short attention span become the main character of a film? Uh, I, I thought the film was successful in that regard because, you know, you did care about her and you wanted her to succeed. But you really need to... Uh, Gosh, I guess you really need to see it for yourself. We don't want to give away any spoilers, nothing like that. And I will say, of course, the film, like every Pixar film, each one is more beautiful than the one before. The voice acting is always top-notch and always fits the characters. But, eh, I don't know. (laughs) I think one of my biggest issues of the film is that it kind of feels like a repeat of the first film in a lot of ways. Um, There's a lot of beats that are repeated, and some things seem derivative from the first one. Um... The first half of the movie is almost like watching the same exact thing as Finding Nebo. And then in the second half, the film kind of breaks off and it finds its own beads and its own heart. And it branches off and does its own thing and it's much more enjoyable after that point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, You're right, I think it did feel... uh, A lot of the first part of the film was very sad and depressing. And it wasn't until the end that it got a little more cheerful. But, you know, the, f- the first film really did deal a lot more with loss between a parent and a child. And this film, Finding Dory, almost felt like it was more uh, like about adopted families mm-hmm. or people who may not traditionally be your family actually being your family. But it, it really was just a rehash of a lot of the first film. Like Jeff mentioned, the first section really was. Um, I don't remember a lot of the extras from the Finding Nemo Blu-ray, but the Finding Dory did have about an hour of, hour's worth of extras, and you know, some of them were kind of odd. Yeah. So, um, so the extras were actually split across two discs. Uh, you know, the main disc, and then there was another extra supplemental disc, which was meh. But uh, some of them <laughs> ranged from pretty cool, and the other ones are kind of like a head-scratching, uh, what? Like, what? Why? Um, yeah. One of the highlights for me was it was called The Octopus and Nearly Broke Pixar, which was a look at yeah, all the like challenges. I'm sorry? Yeah, I, I like that one, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was good. It looked at the yeah. challenges and the processes of creating what they said was the most complicated character that Pixar has ever made. Um, and there was also one about the challenges of building a story around the character that barely remembers her own name, no. let alone what happens in the first film. Um, 
and a lot of stuff about the challenges of making the movie, it seems. But um, there was also a fa- there was also one about voice acting, which again talked about the challenges of doing the voice acting, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then there was a couple of weird ones on the extra disc, which I just didn't understand. Yeah, and the, the one that really made me scratch my head. Almost every disc, you know, you hear uh, Jeff and I will complain that oh, they got the latest Disney star to do something very weird. Always weird. And, yeah, the Disney star for this one was okay. It, it was a little toned down. But the weird one was where you had um, Stanton, the director, driving around the main voice actors in a minivan. And Which they was were so sort weird. Of talking. Yeah, I was thinking it was along the lines like they were going to do some karaoke or some singing, like another famous guy who drives people around in minivans. Not so much. Um, not so much. It was just kind of weird. Uh, and uh, anyway, so <laughs> there were some strange extras, but we do have to mention, I think the Pixar short that was included with the theatrical release and on the, the Blu-ray Piper was wonderful. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So good. So good. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing you can't really say much about it, but the animation was top notch. So much feeling was in that little short, almost as much as in the whole finding Dory film. <laughs> yes. Itself. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we're saying, you know, overall, it's not a bad film. It may not be Pixar's best film, but it's better than most other animated films. That is a very good point. Even anyway, Pixar's worst is better than uh, others. Exactly. So uh, I think you probably need to add this one to your collection. You may want to rent it first, but you'll probably end up buying it anyway. Might as well buy it. Agree. Maybe like one thumb up from each of us. Oh, that's good. Yeah, okay. That's good. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. two thumbs up combined, but one from each of us. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> All right, so, you know, this question has been asked for years, and though we are actually really no closer to an answer, we do have a trail to follow now. So, since 1963, the Enchanted Tiki Room has asked people watching the show, whatever happened to Rosita? We don't know. In fact, as a kid, I thought it was a plot to some elaborate murder mystery. But I, I had so many other questions, too. Like, how is she related to the Tiki Room? And what kind of a bird is she? Who knows? We, we have no idea. But now, many, many years later, we finally have a clue of some sort. In the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad queue at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, they added a bunch of new stuff uh, for during the refurbishment for the interactive queue. And one of these things is a golden cage hanging from the ceiling. And there's a name on the cage. And what is the name on the cage? It says Rosita. But the cage is empty, so she isn't hiding there anymore. But we know where she may have been for a couple of years. And it makes me think that maybe she was actually a canary because, you know, mines and canaries. I don't know. But it's just so yep. weird. It's so weird. Yeah, that's a good point. A canary in a coal mine. See, hmm. there you go. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I've really got no good segue. I mean, I've wanted a segue for years. I've got no good transition point for the year of a million or so limited time because that's with this one because, you know, the prize did not fly away. No, we it did not. Well, it flies to them. Yeah. yeah, that's true. The prize will be flown to them, probably. So, okay, but so uh, the uh, year of a million or so limited time cadets is a prize that we've been giving away every week for almost two years, and there's still a few shows left to get your name in the hat, so to speak. There is. Just email community. Do what? I said there sure is. 
Oh, I thought you said there it is. Like, what, did I have a segue? On, oh, on, no, no, on, no. Okay, never mind. So make sure you email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name and address so we can add you to the list. And this week's prize winner is, oh, and they're going to win, I guess, what, a Communicore Weekly prize pack? Yes, sir, they will. All right. So this week's prize winner is Cynthia B. from Salida, California. Hooray! Yes, very, very excited. So, Cynthia, when you get your prize, take a photo of yourself with it and tweet it to us, put it on the Facebooks, email it to us, do some social media thing with it. We would love to see you with the prize. Yes, we would. Definitely. So, so that means we are at the end of another episode. So, thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show, whether it's on YouTube or on iTunes, leave us a comment, leave us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Exactly. And again, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest or just say hello. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, give us a call on the Communicor Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And make sure you visit the Communa store at communicorweekly.com where you can pick up some incredibly amazing t-shirts. And you can send away for your official cadet membership card and stickers by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can visit patreon.com slash weekly to find out how you can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Dorney. <laughs>